If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up with me to Psalm 63, and then we'll turn in just a little bit to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to go ahead and put a bookmark there. Uh, we'll be spending most of our time in 2 Corinthians, but I wanted to begin our time reading from Psalm 63. If for no other reason, then I love this chapter of the Bible, and it uh, really sets the pace for us today and uh, the conversation that we're going to be uh, having. Uh, uh, these four verses are so important to me and uh, really uh, reflect, I think, um, one of the greatest reminders from God's Word and uh, also a, a, a desire of our heart uh, to receive from God uh, a, a help that we cannot find anywhere else. Uh, and so if you're looking for any uh, measure of help today, uh, no matter how you would quantify that or no matter how, how, how you would categorize that, or even if you don't know how to ask for it, uh, I believe that God's got something to give to us today. So Psalm 63, um, this is a Psalm of David. He wrote this when he was living in a cave uh, in the wilderness uh, on the run from his enemies. Uh, we think of David as the king in a palace, but uh, David spent most of his years actually as a vagabond, as, as a wanderer uh, in the wilderness of Judah on two different parts of his life. During two different parts of his life, um, he learned to live uh, in a pretty, uh, pretty scarce way, uh, but it was in that scarcity that he found a, a surplus uh, of God's favor and of God's help. So uh, listen to the first four verses, if you will, and, and I believe you'll find some, some favorites uh, to, to underline and some to memorize from this passage. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty or a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness, your love is better than life. I love that. Your love is better than life itself. My lips will praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Pretty powerful reminder of the help that we have. And we're going to get into that uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, to kind of set us up today, I wanted to kind of talk about something I think we can all relate to. Uh, the kids just started back school this past week. Um, and, and all of you were once a kid, right? Maybe it feels like it's been a little while, but you were. Maybe you're still a kid at heart, and, and I hope all of you are. If you aren't, uh, lighten up a little bit. It's fun. Uh, it's fun being a child. Uh, we all act like children anyway most of the time. We just try to pretend like we're curmudgeons, uh, right, in front of other people. Um, I, didn't, I didn't call anybody one of those. I just said, hey, we pretend sometimes. Uh, but all of us, uh, all of the kids started back to school, and uh, I think all of us have a shared experience of uh, either looking forward to the new year or not looking forward to the new year. Uh, and I don't know where you land on that, but I was always on the not looking forward to the new year uh, part. Um, so, uh, but all of my first days, and if y'all remember first days of school, they all blur together, and maybe it's because our memories are fading, but really for me, I have a pretty good memory of every one of my first days of school, but they all feel very similar. Uh, like my memory of kindergarten feel very similar to my memory of my senior year, my first day of my, my senior year. Uh, you know, you, you walk in and, and I started school, I, I, I started at elementary school like right after they did this major renovation and uh, this was during the 80s and 90s whenever all the schools suddenly became these big block buildings with white walls. So instead of going into a classroom that was kind of dimly lit uh, and kind of had some, you know, character, I went into these classrooms that were very bright and, and, and uh, I mean painfully bright. And y'all know what I'm talking about? If you've been, this, if you 
you started school anytime in the last, you know, 20, 25, 30 years, you'd go in these white-walled rooms, and they were just so, so bright, and this is probably why I developed migraines, um, because I, and this is why I love really dim and really soft white lights, because I went to school in these white-walled rooms with these very bright lights, and I'm still scarred by all that. But on the first day of school, and you know this, you go to school, and you're half asleep, right? And you're, you know, you're, you're getting out of bed, and you're barely, you know, you look like you just got out of bed, right? You get to school and you're still half asleep and you walk in that room and it's just so blinding, uh, blindingly bright and you, you sit down and you kind of start scanning the room and see if you know anybody and usually you, you know less than you would like to know. Uh, and and, uh, and that's kind of what all my first days feel like because they all are that same experience, walking down that tiled floor, going into a classroom, it's white-walled, sitting into, into a desk and I'm looking around the room and I feel like I'm just kind of blurry and, and, and just kind of out of it um, and, and and that's kind of how the day would start. Uh, but uh, um, they were pretty rough. And, and, and I think it's true, though, that in your first uh, real class of the day, from elementary school to high school, this happened in every class, even in some of my college classes, weirdly enough. Um, in every class, there was pretty much the same exercise that we went through. And in some, time, in some cases, we went through this multiple times the first day, but as we went to different classes as, you know, middle school and high school. Um, so the teacher would say, we're going to go around the room and get to know everybody. And, that's, you know, there would just be this audible sigh because I, know, I don't want to get to know anybody, right? I, I mean, I don't want to know, you know, you know, good, you know, nice, friendly pastor, right? I mean, I'm, I'm here because I have to be here, but I, I'm here because I want to learn, right? I want to learn all the good stuff for the new year, but I don't really want to talk to people. But Nonetheless, the, the teacher, and I have all the respect in the world for, for you teachers because you try to energize your kids and they're not very energetic, especially in the mornings, the first week of school. Uh, but you go around the room and you say, hey, we're going to introduce ourselves. And, and it's pretty general, simple stuff, right? It's, hey, let's hear your name and let's hear something about you. And it's usually something cool or something you'd like to share, something you did over the summer. You know, it's, the idea is share something that's good or positive or fun or that you would like to share. You know, we're not going to put anybody on the spot here. Uh, but uh, I think, uh, can anybody remember this experience, you know, and, and, and you go around the room and, hey, you know, let's, let's hear your name. And, you know, your teacher already knows your name, but then nobody else does, I guess. But let's hear your name and uh, let's, hear what, let's hear something about you. And, and, and I think all of us went through this exercise. Uh, I, I went through it, I think, 13 years in a row and, and sometimes multiple times throughout that day. Um, I used to get very nervous and maybe y'all can relate, I used to get very nervous uh, when somebody, when I was asked to share something about me uh, because I did not ever believe that something about me was worth telling to anybody else. And, and maybe you can relate because I would always worry that what if I say something that someone else is going to snicker at or going to roll their eyes at? And I was very paranoid, right? I've got some, you know, clearly I've got some some social para, social issues, right? But that's just kind of me. I think y'all can y'all can relate. I just always would think I don't want to tell anybody about me because nobody really wants to know about me, and I would just get really nervous. And I think other people know what that's like uh, because I, you know it was going to go one of two ways. Because there's always those people that embellish what they have to say, right? They always say, oh, I went on some crazy trip, and usually they're lying. I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to call kids liars, but kids can tell some lies, right? Uh, you know, usually somebody tells this outlandish story, or they brag about something about them, or they tell something about them, and, you know, the rest of us are sitting around thinking, well, man, I don't have, I can't, I don't have anything like that to share, and not, my cool thing is far less cool than that cool thing. Uh, and and, and you, either, you either embellish something, or you foolishly think you should just be honest and share the truth 
and, and that always ended badly for me uh, because uh, I would always share something that ended up being pretty childish, uh, which, I, you know, after all, I was a child, but, you know, everybody's trying to be tough and, and big and bad in school, right? And I would say, hey, you know, my, you know, something cool about me is, you know, this is my favorite TV show, and it was always some cartoon, and people would snicker and laugh, and they would say, you know, uh, you know and I would look over, and I would be like, well, you know, you watch it too. You just don't want to admit that you do. Um, but uh, that was me, you know, and I, I kind of developed some, you know, that's probably uh, part of my development, trying to deal with all that, circumnavigating that first day of school. Um, but, uh, you know, not to disappoint everybody, we're, we're not going to do that exercise today. So I know y'all would love to go around the room and share your name uh, and share something about you, uh, but uh, we're not going to do that today. Uh, if you'd like to do it sometime in the future, let me know, and, and I'll let some of you spearhead that. Um, but uh, what if... What if we did this exercise and the prompt was something different? What if the question was, tell us who you are and tell us something about you that you struggle with? What if the prompt was, and this would never be the prompt in school because we wouldn't want to embarrass anybody. You don't want to put kids on the spot. But, and, and why would you ever start this? Why would you break the ice like this? But what if the prompt was, tell us your weakest trait. Tell us your greatest struggle. Now, talk about telling lies. I mean, we'd all be talking, you know, mumbling, uh, you know, under our breath, trying to get our, 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 our you know, answer out. Uh, there's something about us that feels like we can't be honest about our weakest parts, right? There's something about us that says the part that's weak, you know, we don't want to fess up about our struggles. Why would I ever tell somebody and why would I ever be honest to anybody, even myself, about my struggles and my weaknesses. You, you see, this would never be a good community building or group building exercise because it would put everybody in a very awkward and shameful place. But come on, trying to tell people what we already like makes things awkward as it is. Who of us could actually be honest about our greatest struggles and our greatest weaknesses? And the reason why none of us would ever wanna do that and the reason why you and, and most of us, and, and me included, would think that would be the craziest prompt ever given, even in church, is because we think to win approval and to fit in that we must project strength and conceal our weaknesses. Isn't it true? That we think, it's like the first date or the first group outing you went on with a group of friends. You never want to come out and tell people what kind of mess you are, right? You want to hide that stuff and, and you want to hope that maybe three years into the relationship, oh, they find out that I've, you know, I, I'm actually, I'm actually kind of normal, right? I'm not some superhuman person. But we think that we've got to project strength and we've got to conceal our weaknesses. But what if a little more honesty... And what if a little more transparency would actually make us more human, more relatable? But something in us says, I don't know about that, Justin. I don't think that that's really fun or really beneficial to anybody. So many of us, I think so many of you, are used to. We pretend and we present a version of ourselves to the world around us. Isn't it true that we get out of bed and we, we color everything up and we button everything up and we fix everything up and we go to work and we kind of present a version of ourselves and we project a version of ourselves to the world around us. And the reason why this is important to us today here in church is because we have allowed that way of dealing with the world to influence the way we deal with God. And a lot of us, and I think a lot of you, and I know me included, we pretend and we project ourselves to God just like we do to the world. And it makes, it makes no sense that we do that. 
when we understand who God really is and what God really knows. Yet we do this, don't we? But what the local church has always been about and been tasked to do is to encourage everyone to be honest with themselves, with each other, and with God. Because while we may fool ourselves with and try to fool others, there's no fooling God. We know that. God knows everything about us. And he loves us. Do you see the, the, the paradox there? God knows everything about you. He doesn't just know what you present to him. He doesn't just know what looks good to him or what you bring to him, all dressed up and cleaned up and shiny. He knows everything about you. And the message of the Bible isn't that God only loves the good parts of you or the presentable parts of you or the parts that you are proud of. The message of the Bible is that God loves you in spite of the things that you don't love about yourself. A lot of us think in religion, religion has convinced us that God only loves the version that we bring to him, the best version, the dressed up version, the cleaned up version. But did you know that God loves the real you? See, if you're like me and you were brought up in church, there was a part of you, there was a part of me that thought God loves me, but God really only loves the version of me that comes to him and is really trying hard and looking the best and doing the best and working out the best. But here's the gospel. God loves the real you. And maybe you don't love the real you. And maybe there are other people that struggle loving the real you, but the good news is that God's love is better than life itself. And this is an invitation for you to experience not just this superficial Valentine's Day love. Oh, that, you know, I love you whenever you're doing stuff for me or I love you because, hey, things are looking good. But this is the love that God has for us. I love the real you. And I think a lot of you, I think a lot of us need to experience what it means to be loved by God in the real way. God wants you to quit pretending so that you might let him love the real you. Does that make sense? See, a lot of us, we don't allow God into our hearts in the way that he can actually love the real version of us. We just allow God on the periphery, right? You know, there, there's that part, there's that thing that you do when people come over, right? There's company that you really kind of want to keep outside. You know, you beat them at the door and you're kind of blocking the front door like this and you're thinking, yeah, you could come in, but I don't really want you to come in. So I'm just going to hang out on the porch with you, right? But then there's the people that you kind of bring into the living room and you don't mind if they kind of kick their feet up and hang out a little while, right? But then there's parts of your house that you don't really want anybody going in just because it's messy and it's just, it's just not really for, you know, it's not where you take company. But God is better than we often think him to be. A lot of us present a cardboard version of ourselves to God, but listen, this isn't school where people might snicker and laugh. There aren't people to impress. This isn't a popularity contest or a race to see who earns a superlative or receives the particular honors. This is church and this is God's family. And one of the most underutilized pillars of the local church is an invitation for you to be honest about yourself especially in particular your weaknesses and your struggles. There's a difference. There's a difference in bringing attention and glorifying sin and being humble and earnest and being transparent and humble, uh, seeking prayer and support. That's what I'm talking about. 
We would never be, we wouldn't ever want to put anyone on the spot, even if this would be a great exercise. Uh, but what if, what if we did go around the room and peel back our vulnerabilities? What if we did open up and talk about ourselves as if we were real humans and real flawed and had real needs? Again, I'd never make you do this, but I feel like someone in my position is only as credible as honest as they are. So I'm not going to make you do it, but I'll do it just to try to break the ice a little bit. While pastors shouldn't give unnecessary reasons for people to doubt their leadership and their above reproach qualities, they should, we should be honest. We should be honest about the grace we preach that it's also the air we breathe. So y'all already know my name. And if you don't know my name, my name is Justin Hauser. It's nice to meet you. Um, But uh, my name is Justin and my greatest flaw, And if you know me, you you know this is true. My greatest fall, my greatest weakness is an inability to rest. Now, not just physically rest, which I don't really do that either, but maybe I'll do that today. Uh, But my greatest flaw is an inability to rest. And let me interpret that. My greatest flaw, my greatest struggle is I struggle resting in God's sovereignty over the unknown. Now, here's what that means. I know a lot about God because I've read a lot about God. I know we can talk theology for about four or five days straight and we won't, we won't run out of content. I know a lot about God and the things I know about God and the things I can quote about God and the things I can write about God and expound about God, I have zero stress or zero worries about those things working out as they have been written because I can point to them and I can believe them and I have experienced them. But where I struggle is trusting in God's sovereignty and resting in God's sovereignty in the unknowns. See, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in being diligent and being faithful. I, I believe that you should be proactive and take responsibility for your life. You guys know me well enough to know that hey, I'm not gonna be outworked. Uh, yet there's a point in being diligent and faithful and responsible where you reach the end of what you can do and are called to do. And at that point, it gets foggy. And at that point, you can't see the path and it gets dim and it tapers off. That's the part where the Bible commands us and encourages us to rest in God's control. We're commanded to be faithful where God has placed us, but to rest in God's hands. And my biggest struggle is resting in that promise. And again, it's not that I don't believe that promise. It's that it's hard for me to internalize that promise. And it causes a lot of uncertainty for me, uncomfort, discomfort for me. But I know this, even though I can say this and preach this and I believe this, that he didn't just place us there and turn us loose. His hands are still underneath us. I know that, but I struggle resting in that. And maybe you can relate there. Now, there's a part of me that even after I've done all that I'm responsible to do, I continue to wonder if I've done enough. Now, if you ask me, Justin, you shouldn't worry like that. Well, I'm not worrying. I'll say, I'm not not worrying. I'm just dwelling on it and fixating on it and allowing it to consume my mind and frustrate my joy. But I'm not worrying. I'm just allowing it to make me miserable. (laughs) Can anybody relate? Oh, I'm not worrying about it. I haven't worried at all. Yet I am sick to my stomach about what I can't control. Now, again, maybe you're not like this, but this is me. And if you know me, you probably have kind of seen through the cracks and can tell this. Now, maybe you can relate, maybe you can't, but I bet someone here knows what it's like to worry, obsess over uncontrollable and unknowns. Instead of trusting what 
out of what's out of your control into God's hands and leaving the rest to him and resting in him. Whether you express it like I just did or, or not, most of us experience a restlessness in some area of our lives. In a dry and weary land, all of us are looking for relief, but it's only ever found in the Lord. Now, whether it's struggling to rest in God's approval, a lot of us struggle with that. We struggle resting in God's approval. We try to measure up by our own ability and our own works. We struggle to rest in God's order of things. And, and, and have, you ever, have you ever struggled trying to be happy and satisfied with God's way because you've been doing it your way and you've, been, you've had a pretty good life doing it your way, but God's way says this should be done and you struggle letting go. You struggle changing your lifestyle because you don't see anything wrong with the things that you've been doing, yet God's word says this is best and you struggle resting in that. Maybe you struggle resting in God's plan of salvation, thinking that you've got to bring something, you've got to do something, you've got to work off something, instead of just trusting that Jesus paid it all. That's the kind of, that's where all of our worry, anxiety stems from, really all of our struggles, all of our shortcomings, all of our weaknesses come from, comes from a place that questions, that doubts that Jesus is enough that Jesus is enough. This is why I love the local church and I love talking to groups of Christians like you because it allows us all to hear loud and clear from God in his word and see how amazing he is and his word is and how incredible the invitation he's put before us is. The help that God wants to give us in this particular area, bidding us to come to him in honesty and humility comes from a man that we would expect to never talk about his flaws because we would suppose he didn't have any. In 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn over there, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is fighting for the soul of the Corinthian church against other false teachers, other false prophets who are simply trying to stunt the growth in the church that God has started. Paul's opponents were trying to undermine him and discredit him by bragging about how strong they were and how knowledgeable they were. And they were pointing to the Corinthian people and telling the Corinthian people that Paul was not a good role model because have you noticed how much, how hard of a time he has? Have you noticed how many hardships he faces? Have you noticed how many bad days he has? I mean, how many shipwrecks has he been in? How many windows has he been thrown out of? How many times has he been stoned? I mean, are you really trusting in that guy as your preacher, as your teacher? I mean, this guy has bad days after bad days. He has, been, uh, he has been through one continuous spiral of difficulty. Why are you believing that he's your guy when we, who never have any bad days and are strong and we look good and sound good and preach good, why don't you follow us and not him? And, and honestly, this was the devil's way of trying to keep the church from getting off the ground uh, the way it was supposed to. Uh, but this was a, 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 a really a, a point of, of contention for the first century church. Now, maybe you didn't know this, but Paul, as great a preacher as he was, as successful as a church planner as he was, he faced great trials and persecutions, tribulations. He writes to the Corinthian church and he opens up about all that he'd gone through. These rumors came to them about all the stuff that Paul had been going through and Paul doesn't hide it. He says, hey, yeah, uh, uh, there's been some hard days. There's been some struggles. And he tells them about some things that nobody else knew about. His reason for this was simple. Rather than combating the opponents by trying to brag about what he knew and what he had done, even though he could do a lot of that, he takes a different approach. Now we're going to jump in midstream to this conversation, but we've covered the context. Paul has opened up about his external trials he'd faced in ministries, the shipwrecks, the assaults, the imprisonments. 
And now he's going to transition into talking about the struggles that nobody knew about or no one had ever seen because they were internal. They were something private. But he's going to make a point. The church is not a place where you, you should feel like you have to hide your weaknesses. And if you feel like it, if you feel like that's the case, it's because the church has done a bad job at defining itself and realizing itself. But we're going to try to get back to ground zero today. The church is not a place where weakness is judged. The church is a place where our weaknesses becomes a platform to witness the power of God. Now, I don't know what your weaknesses are. You do. Your spouse does. Your family does. Maybe you'd think they don't know, but they know. I don't know what your weaknesses are, but you do. And the invitation today is that the church is not a place for your weaknesses to be hid or concealed or ashamed of, be ashamed of. The church is a place for your weaknesses to become a platform for you might to witness the power of God. Now, keep that in mind as we begin to hear Paul talk about some hardships and then some pretty amazing things that he went through. Now, 2 Corinthians 11, we're jumping in at the very end, verse number 30, and this will lead us into the next chapter. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. And infirmity is another word for weakness. And most translations say weakness or flaws or shortcomings. So Paul says, hey, if I'm going to brag about who I am and what I've been through, I'm going to brag to y'all. Y'all might not want to hear this. I'm going to brag about my weaknesses. And he's already just went on a whole passage about the weaknesses that he's faced, the struggles he's faced externally. The God, of, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. And, and he gives one last example of a, of a bad day or a struggle. In Damascus, the governor under Artius, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Now, he's talking about the time that he first became a Christian, when his allies suddenly became his enemies and the authorities were coming against him to arrest him right out of the gate when he first became a Christian in the foyer of the building Paul learned there would be plenty of hardships but I want you to notice the contrast here in the very next passage he goes from writing about being lowered down the side of a building as in hey I, when I became a Christian I immediately went on an elevator ride down not because my life got worse it got much better not because things were worse for me they were much better for me but because as I became a Christian I began to face some struggles in this world that I didn't face before so you, you see this downward motion. In the very next passage, he talks about being raised up. So I don't think that contrast is coincidental there. I think it's meant to be noticed. Chapter 12, verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So he's kind of going to talk in the third person here. He's going to talk about a man that he knew, but this is himself. I know a man in Christ who, was, who 14 years ago, whether in body or I don't know, or out of body, I don't know, and in, in, in Basically, he had probably was in a coma, probably knocked unconscious. We'll talk about that. But I don't know really how this happened. I don't know if it was real. It was a dream. God knows such one was caught up to the third heaven. So he means not just the stars and the space, but I was caught up into the real heaven that we can't see. I know such a man, whether in the body, out of body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for man to utter. So Paul says, I saw things I can't eat. I'm not allowed to share them. So 
keep in mind when people share stuff that they see when they go to heaven, right, and have these visions, Paul couldn't share what he saw. So that's a whole sidebar. Just thought I would say that. So Paul gets caught up to heaven. Now, I think you put these two stories side by side. Physically, he may have faced trials, but spiritually, he was beyond blessed. Do you see the contrast there? Physically, he went down, but spiritually, he was raised up. Now, God allowed Paul to see a vision of heaven. Now, we know that Paul, on one occasion, was stoned at Lystra and was drug out into the city, drug out from the city, assumed to be dead. So we, uh, maybe this is the case when he was unconscious that God consoled him uh, with this vision. Uh, maybe it was another occasion, but clearly he was out of it. He was in a coma. He was not conscious at the moment, and God showed him this vision. And this could have happened while he was dreaming. We don't know, but clearly he doesn't really give us the details. Now, Paul does not talk about what he saw. That's not the point. He actually tells us that this, this put all of his struggles into context for him. This is a roundabout way for Paul to explain that he had many weaknesses that nobody knew about. The same way that he had this vision of heaven that nobody knew about and would ever know about. You see what he's saying? Hey, y'all, I could brag about all the stuff. If you, hey, let's go around the room. My name is Paul, and I've been to heaven. What do you got? Oh, well... I can quote John 3.16. I mean, I, that, right? that's most of us, right? I mean, what do you do when the super Christian in the back of the room says, oh, I've went to heaven. You want to hear about it? Paul says, hey, I could go that route. I could brag about what I know and what I've seen and what I've done, but that's not my approach. And I want to make it clear, that's not what the local church is supposed to be about. We're not here to brag. We're not here to be arrogant. We're not here to make it seem like we all got to be this super saint, super buttoned up apostle kind of person. Paul says, hey, if anybody could do that, it's me, and I'm not doing it, so nobody can do it. Again, that's not me saying that. That's Paul saying that, and I'm glad he said that, because I don't have anything really special to offer anybody. Paul, on the other hand, did, but Paul says, hey, I'm not going to do it, so be careful when other people make stuff up, because <laughs> they're just doing it for the wrong reasons. So Paul says, hey, I could, I'm not going to. So then, after he teases out this vision, from there he's going to go into detail about what he calls a thorn in his flesh. Something that poked him and prodded at him and frustrated him. We don't know what this thorn was. It's safe to assume if it was in his flesh, it was something fleshly, something internal. It could have been anxiety. It could have been fear, doubt, jealousy, greed, lust, anger, bitterness, any of the fruits of the flesh. It could have been anything that we all deal with. And all of us know what it's like to deal with any of these or all of these. It's things in us that make us worse versions of ourselves. Things that we're ashamed of or things that we don't have control of. Things that kind of make the worst parts of us come out. Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh. We don't know what it was. It was something in his flesh, something in his human nature that was, an, was antagonizing him. We don't know if it was tempting him, discouraging him, distracting him, but it was something that was a distraction. Now you think the great apostle Paul, how could he ever be held back by his flesh? He was a spiritual man. He was an accomplished saint. Well, listen how he understands it. Verse 5. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities or my weaknesses. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. You see what Paul's saying? I don't want anybody thinking I'm any, any different than them. 
I don't want anybody looking at me thinking, man, look at him. What a wow. Look at Paul, the great and awesome apostle. He said, I want y'all to know I'm just like you. I might be raised up a couple feet on the platform, but I'm on the ground level with you all. I'm not any better. I'm not any holier. He says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. And I love how Paul's kind of tongue-in-cheek saying, by the way, I've seen a lot of stuff. And I know a lot of stuff. But I'm not going to brag about it. And you can't either, if you, if you think you have. And he's doing this because he's trying to make sure that nobody thinks they can get by with it. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Man, this is good. Paul believed he could never get free from this weakness, this thing that held him back, that discouraged him, because it was meant to help him remain humble. Now, Paul didn't seem like he had, a tr- had any trouble being humble. But he tells us that this was given to me to keep me humble. Now, you might say, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, God was kind of putting a leash on him because he was worried he was going to get too far out into freedom. I mean, why would God treat me like a child that needs to be restrained and restricted? Oh, that's so insulting. Why would God treat me like a child? Because that's what we are, right? (laughs) Have you seen what you do when you have no restraints and no restrictions? Have you seen what our world does when it has no restraints and no restrictions? We build all-you-can-eat buffets and we make ourselves sick, right? I mean, and that's, that's that's the comical version of it. Have you seen what we do when we don't have any restraints or restrictions? We take ourselves to the very limit of indulgence, to the very limit of what is what it's even safe for our minds and bodies to consume. Let me ask you this. What season of your life are you most ashamed of? What part of your life are you most disappointed with? It's probably the season you had little to ground you or restrain you or tether you to a purpose. It's that probably that part of your life where you kind of was able to do what you wanted to with whom you wanted to and nobody could stop you. That's probably the part of your life that you kind of wish you could have to do over with, Right? Do you know why Jesus commanded us to follow him? You know why he said, follow me and not here's a map, I'll meet you at the end? Because he knows good and well, if he gave us a map, he would never hear from us again and he would never see us at the end. Is that landing with anybody? He said, follow me as in stay close and mimic my steps and stay in my shadow. Because if he gave us a map and he said, I'll see you at the end, we would never make it and he would never hear from us. We get distracted and we get destroyed. You know, God gave the children of Israel directions when they left Egypt. He said, hey, you're going to go here, you're going to go there, you're going to go to Kadesh Barnea, then you're going to go to Canaan's land, you'll be done in 12 days, 14 days you'll be there. He gave them a map, and it took them 40 years to get there because they walked in circles and argued. No wonder he doesn't give us a map. You understand, God wants you to keep near to him. Our weaknesses are meant to keep you close to him. The problem is we've never thought about them that way, have we? We've never looked at our weaknesses as something that could actually get us closer to God. You know what aggravates me? 
I'm not going on the soapbox here about anything religious, really. This is about electronics. You know what aggravates me about electronics when I buy a new electronic is when the power cord is super short. Can anybody relate? When you buy something and it's got about an 18-inch power cord on it, I mean, what am I going to do with that? I mean, unless it's a toaster oven, right? I mean, I might want to drag that across the room. When I get something and it's got a three inch to six, you know, not three inch, but when I get a power cord that's like 12 inches or 18 inches, I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? And and, and here's the thing. You and I have a super short power cord. We need to stay close to the source so that we stay well connected because if we get a little bit far away, we're going to come out of the source. We're going to come unplugged. If you and I had a long extension cord, we'd stretch it to the limits as much as we can, and you know how that goes. If you, if you ever vacuum with a cord, with another cord attached to it, you always take it to the very limit, and you think, I can go another foot, and what happens? You pull it out of the wall because you knew better. You knew you didn't have another foot, but you thought, hey, this is long. I can make it. We always stretch it too far. So God has made it very short. God doesn't want any of us to get too far away. Now, for a long time, you thought your weaknesses disqualified you and was a point of shame. Paul wants us to understand that our weaknesses are actually a reminder. Our weaknesses are actually a reminder that we need the Lord and that we have what we need in and from the Lord. Look at verse 8. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that I might, that it might depart from me. Paul begged God to remove this. He didn't see his weakness as anything but an albatross, as a burden for the longest time. He begged God across three seasons for his, for, of his life to remove it. But finally, Jesus came to Paul and spoke some of the most powerful words you're ever, you'll ever read from God. Verse 9. And he said to me, and most of your Bibles, this is in red. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness, your weakness. Therefore, most gladly, this is Paul talking. Most gladly, I will rather boast in my weaknesses and infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And this is so rich and will be done. This is, I want to unpack this real quickly. First up, God says to us when we, over, we are overcome with weaknesses, don't you know that's why I've provided grace? Oh yeah, of course you're weak. You're a human. Don't you realize that's why you've got grace? That's why I've given you grace? A lot of Christians don't really understand grace. We still kind of think we don't need it. We think we kind of are able to do the right thing and we're kind of able to manage it ourselves. But it turns out Our weaknesses are meant to remind us that we are not and never will be perfect. I hate to disappoint somebody today that maybe thinks they can get there, but you will never get there. And that thing in you that you don't, you hide from people, that thing in you that you never tell anybody about, that nobody knows about, and you're really good at making people, impressing people with the five things that make you look holy, but that one thing that makes you look so unholy, it cancels the other ones out. You know what it is. I know we all know what it is. That crippling anxiety, that crippling fear, that, that, that greed, that lust, that bitterness, that anger, that, that jealousy, all that stuff, stuff that we hide. That weakness is meant to remind you that you are not perfect and you never will be perfect, that you need the saving grace of God and the sustaining grace of God. A lot of us, we're still hiding behind what we present and project. We're still hiding the truth that we're broken sinners in need of a Savior. We prop up on what we feel like we're strong uh, with Yet we need to bow down in our weaknesses. 
He says, my grace is sufficient for you. A lot of us have not surrendered to the the sufficiency, to the enoughness, put it in English, our English, enoughness, I don't know if that's a word. We've not surrendered to the enoughness of grace. And here's the truth. We won't ever experience the fullness of God's grace unless we accept and admit the fullness of our shortcomings. Now, for some of you, religion has taught you the opposite of that. But this is Christianity. This is the gospel. Look at what he says. For my power, Jesus says, my power, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Some of us need to read this over and over again and repent of our pride and take hold of this true power of God. This is an invitation to reframe all the things that about you that you're ashamed of, that you keep secret, the things that cause trouble for your closest relationships, the thing that has held you back for so long. This is an invitation that says, instead of being reminded about how weak you are, you can be reminded of the grace and power of God prescribed to you in that specific area. You see that? That Jesus says, my strength is at its perfection. The the word there is zenith. My strength is most or best applied in your weakness. If you take medicine that isn't for your problem, it's not going to fix your problem, right? But Jesus says, hey, I've got help for you just for that weakness that you have held back. You may feel that your weakness has power over you, but actually your weakness is your access to God's power within you. Let me say that again. Your weakness is your access to God's power within you. My weakness is my access to God's power within me. God would not remove the weakness from Paul because he was using it to keep Paul empowered. And that's the same case for us. So Paul says, I will gladly boast in my weaknesses. So you know what Paul is saying there? I have decided that my weakness is actually to my benefit. Again, he's not saying that sin is a good thing. He's saying that the weakness in him that holds him back, that frustrates him, that tempts him, that discourages him, that that troubles him, that weakness in him that he feels and that presses him and that, that comes upon him, that weakness he's realized is an entry point to the power of God. What if? What if your weakest asset turned out to be your unexpected ally? You hear me? What if the thing about you that you're ashamed of and you're most concerned about and you're most troubled by, or maybe the thing in you that you don't think is a problem that everyone else thinks is a problem that you haven't accepted as a problem, you will one day maybe. What if your weakest asset turned out to be an unexpected ally? What if you could somehow transform the way you look at that weakness What if the part of you that struggles the most is actually the secret to keeping your Savior close? 
For so long we've allowed weakness to drive us to shame. We don't talk about them when they rear their head that cause trouble or impact our homes. We sort of just wait for the smoke to clear. But what if we begin associating our weaknesses with God's grace and power? What if we rebranded our weakest asset as our unexpected ally, as a reminder, as a catalyst, as a stepping stone to the help that we can get? What if when your weakness is rises up, when you're reminded of your weakness, what if you said, thank you, that reminds Reminds me that God's power is that much closer to me. Thank you, weakness. Thank you, worry. Thank you, fear. Thank you, doubt. Thank you, greed. Thank you, jealousy. Because you have just reminded me that I have access to the power of God. You are not my master and you don't have control over me anymore. But now you have showed me that I have. You've reminded me that I have access to a Savior who is made perfect in this very weakness. What if we let God love the weakest part of us? See, this is, this is gonna, be, gonna have to require a lot of us to open our hearts up because you've gotta let God love that part of you to show you that he loves you, he forgives you for whatever the pain it might have caused and that he can actually use that and transform that and can actually give you strength in that weakness and show to you that, that his power is able to be made known in that very area. Verse 10, Paul closes up. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities or weaknesses and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. So he says, hey, anything that's a problem, internally, externally. For when I am weak, then, as in at the same time, because I realize this, I am strong. I'm telling you, church, if you will commit verses 9 and 10 to memory and, interline, uh, and underline this message and internalize this message, every time you're overwhelmed, every time you're overcome, every time you're tempted, every time you're discouraged, you will remember. And maybe at first you won't be happy that you remember, or maybe you'll be so thankful you remember, but you will remember. You will remember this doesn't have to be the beginning of me shutting down, going down this path that I don't like, being overtaken by some emotion that nobody likes to deal with. You will remember. You will see your weakness as your ally. As your ally. And you will remember. You will remember there is grace available to you. There is power accessible within you. This is the possibility for every one of us. As Paul said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. If I will rest in him and trust in him and allow his grace to be sufficient for me. Listen, I don't, I don't have to prod for any of you about what your weaknesses are. You all know what they are and how they hold you back. But my plea to us today, let's not accept that these weaknesses must continue to cripple us when there is available to us the power and grace of God. From now on, from now on, when we face weakness, we have the opportunity to embrace the grace and power of Jesus. From now on, when you face weakness and when you're overcome by that weakness, you have the opportunity to embrace the power and grace of God because your weakest asset is your unexpected ally your unexpected friend. 
reminding you that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, that his power has been poured out to that particular part of you. And his, his question to you today or his invitation to you today is, will you bring that to me? Will you bring that to me? You know, the, 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 the difficult part of being in this job is I, know, I internalize this stuff so much that when I deal with this stuff and there's days, when I, that there's days that I just want to mope and there's days that I just kind of want to deal with it. I want to kind of let it just overcome me and destroy me because that's how our flesh is. It wants to beat us up. That I have this reminder and this reminder to me saying, go to God. There is power available and there's still something in me that says, I don't know about that. Why should I do that? How foolish, right? But this thing in me is not a disqualifier. That thing in you is not a disqualifier. It's an ally. It brings you to your Savior. Jesus said, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. And he's talking about an ox being led. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That burden you're bearing is pretty heavy. But Jesus puts on that yoke. He puts that yoke upon us and he leads us and guides us into a life that is truly full of peace. Let's not project. Let's humbly come before him honestly, transparently, and let's find the rest and grace and power that God promises. You have that reminder now. I guarantee you, that unexpected ally will always point you toward your definite and certain Savior. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this, what I think is a breakthrough message from your word. God, there's so much in us that holds back from you and that feels like we should present a version of ourselves to you. But God, can we just all agree today that we're going to be honest and we don't got to tell anybody, but we should certainly got to tell you. But maybe we need to go home to our loved ones and we need to sit at the table and say, listen, I'm tired of pretending like this isn't a problem for me or a struggle for me. But would you help me to our husbands and wives and our family? Would you hold me accountable? And Lord, may our church be that kind of reminder to people that our weaknesses should drive us to our Savior? And then if we don't allow them to lead us to Jesus, we're leaving grace on the table. Lord, thank you so much that you've showed us that our weaknesses are not our enemies. They actually are an ally that leads us to our Savior. They are the stepping stone. They are the portal. They are the entry point into your grace, transforming our lives. Lord, I don't know what everybody struggles with. I don't know what their weaknesses are, but you do and they do. Would you show them that, that your grace is sufficient, that your power is made perfect in their weakest part and allow them to say in confidence, yes, I am weak, but now I am strong. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.